Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 10, Crowns Are Overrated. We'll uh, be kicking this episode off the same way we kick off all the episodes. We've got uh, five chapters that we've read and we're going to give some uh, in-depth, insightful analysis for you guys. Uh, this week it's Eddard 12, 13, and 14, and sandwiched in there are Danny 5 and John 6. That's uh, chapters 45 through 49, according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Uh, and as you can see, if you're an observant listener or, or, uh, <laughs> downloader, I suppose, uh, we've got a longer than customary, uh, podcast time this week. Normally we try to keep it to around 90 minutes, uh, this time in celebration of our 10th episode. Oh. <laughs> we're, and, and because we looked at these five chapters, uh, that we're going to be covering and just thought they are super substantial. They've got a ton of content in them. That we want to uh, make sure we're not shortchanging our audience by keeping it to 90. So we're going with two hours. Hopefully you guys will forgive us uh, or enjoy the extra 30 minutes, whichever end of the scale you're on, about how much you care about 90 minutes or not. Anyway, uh, just want to remind everyone we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for a special segment we call Davos After Dark. And don't worry, we'll warn you with a nifty little uh, a nifty little musical cue that Matt dreamed up. And um, lastly, uh, as always, if you want to contact us to provide feedback or ask questions, or encourage us to, to delve into a specific area, just reach out to us. There's lots of places to contact us. DavosFingers.com, which will take you to our Tumblr site, uh, or email at WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com, uh, Twitter at DavosFingers, or you can find and like us on Facebook. We've had uh, some great comments on Facebook over the past couple weeks. Thanks to everybody there, and uh, also lots of smartassery and, and japing going on on Twitter, and uh we love seeing all that, and uh, it's been really rewarding to join the Song of Ice and Fire community out there and all the fans that are a part of it. So, uh, so much fun. Yeah, lots of fun. I think it's turned into Matt's life. Uh, if, you, if you're on Twitter, part of it's, it. it's usually Matt getting back to you. He's all over that uh, with Brooke and I and Kate occasionally uh, dipping our toesies in. So, uh, so we're going to start uh, with Eddard12. And uh, I think I'm taking us through this episode, right, Brooke? Unless you had anything to add, I'll just dive right in. Get on in there. All right. Hey-o. So we're, uh, don't usually need that much encouragement. Winter is coming. Like a dire wolf prowling in the dark. He'll take off your head, but his friends call him dead. Warden of the North, yeah, he's Eddard Star. So, so we started this chapter with Ned. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. He's being visited by Maester Pycelle, uh, who tells him that healing takes time. Thanks, Dick, for telling me the obvious. Uh, but he also tells him that Tywin is wroth regarding the orders that, uh, that Ned has given for Sir Gregor's uh, denouncement of his land and titles and also for his head. Ned tells him to take a hike. He doesn't care about Tywin's anger because Triple B has his back. Ned's not so certain that that's really the case, but he's putting up a brave front. Then Ned gets some solitary time and he reflects on the truth, the absolute bomb of the truth that he was uh, laid forth in the previous Sansa chapter, that the Baratheon children are really incestuous Lannister children. Not that the children themselves are incestuous, mind you, but that they are the product of incestuous behavior. Uh, There's a good chance they are, though. It uh, could be. We'll we'll uh, we'll leave that to further spoilers, Brooke. <laughs> in any event, uh, the fact that these are in fact the children of Jamie and Cersei is the truth that John Aaron uh, has died for. 
Littlefinger arrives, though, and cuts off his musings, announces that uh, men gather at Casterly Rock, and uh, Ned fears for what that means. Uh, there are apparently swords and soldiers of all kinds flocking to Casterly Rock uh, as an antithesis, or, or not an antithesis, but a precursor to uh, some violence that we expect to be happening. Uh, we also hear that the heart, the, uh, the, the magical huge beast that uh, Robert was tracking in the woods, has been killed by wolves, uh, but he's stayed behind to hunt a giant boar. Robert Triple B can always be counted on to stay hunting for longer, and he's done just that. Uh, Ned then reflects that he has no support in the city. Ned, uh, Triple B isn't there. He doesn't really have many friends here, and he's you know his guard is partially left to go get Gregor, and partially you know been killed by uh, Jamie, and he's just feeling a little a little naked. He also starts thinking about how he can break the news of Robert's children not being his children and avoid a bloodbath. He notes that Triple B has pardoned some in the past. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, Barris and Selmy being one uh, of, of several. Um, but that this is really another level of treachery. You know, this, is, this deceit goes much deeper than that. So Ned, Ned decides he's going to go to the Godswood, and he invites the Queen, Circe, to come to him. And she does. She does so dressed in leather boots, hunting greens, a brown cloak, and a nasty bruise from when Robert uh, savaged her in the last chapter, where we saw them all together. Uh, Circe's confronted with the question about the children. She doesn't run from it. Jamie's her lover. All the kids are theirs. And they push Bran out the window. The trifecta of truth comes out. She, she also lets out that she took great pains to never get with child uh, with Robert, uh, and that it did happen once, and she had to take care of it, um, which is not a nice fact to hear. She and, and Ned just takes a minute and he asks, what happened? Like, Robert was very much a kingly man at one, at one time. What, what happened to ruin this? And she reveals that the night of their wedding feast was the day she turned to him because stinking of wine and inside of her, he, he whispered the name Lyanna. And that would be a deal breaker for many. In any event, Circe offers a deal. Um, they bury the hatchet with... Uh, well, what I presume to be a sexual offer, and he sits on the truth of the children. Ned offers her in response, instead of agreeing to her deal, a chance to flee with her family before Triple B returns. Tells her to go across the sea and never come back. That she can't run far enough from Robert's wrath, then she better get going now. She tells Ned that he should have taken the throne when he had the chance, and that when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. And then she leaves him there. And that is the end of the chapter. And I'd like to start off, Brooke, if we could, about Robert and his reaction to this news and what we think his reaction would be. Do you have any other place to go instead? No, I think that's a great place to start because that's certainly what's hanging in the balance here. Though I will say, Cersei, not easily threatened and also, like, handled the whole... uh, confession thing about the origins of her children and murdering or attempting to murder Bran, like really casually. She's like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, they're Jamie's. Of course they are dummy. Well, you know, maybe I'm the only villain here uh, of the three of us, but have you ever had uh, some, some truth or something that you're not proud of that people don't know about, or, you know, something that, that, that you don't want to talk to about people, but you just know eventually you're going to have to fess up to it or, admit it or, you know, apologize for it. And it's gotten to you enough that 
you've actually had the conversation in your head a few times. I, I wonder if Cersei has practiced this, even her reactions in the mirror, dozens of times. Like, this is going to come up eventually, and I better be ready and handle it the right way. You know what? I think you might be onto something there, and it's backed up by the evidence you pointed out of how she dressed when she came to this meeting. Yeah. Every other time that we've seen her or heard her described in the books, she's been very elegantly and ostentatiously made up. Lots of jewels, big gowns, lots of colors, lots of Lannister pride. And here she comes to see Ned, very muted colors, very, I'm not sure it's casual clothing, but probably clothing that would more appeal to a less sophisticated Northern Lord in her eyes. She's like, she's like Anne Anne Perkins from Parks and Rec, how she always dresses (laughs) like the guy she's dating. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. So she knew that it's some, that Ned knew the truth. She knew that she would, you know, fess up to it because she's already come well to terms with the whole, who her children are from deal and three that she might have to use, you know, her sexuality as some sort of like leverage or, or bribe to get Ned to be quiet. And so she went to lengths to make sure that could actually be used as a negotiating tool. And it worked kind of, well, he, well, well he did admit that he, he hadn't seen her as beautiful in a long time. But yeah. He did now. It had it's been like, a long time. Mm, like those hunting greens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it had been a long time since he saw her beauty, but he saw it now, right? Looking good, Cersei, yeah. Yeah. I like... think his, uh, her comfort level also just stems from a tremendous confidence in her position versus his. Yeah. She, she knows that he's got no friends at court. She knows that half of his crew is either chasing Gregor or dead in the streets of King's Landing, uh, including arguably his best warrior and bodyguard. Um, she She knows, as well as Ned does, that she's got the upper hand here regardless of truce that he knows and that Mm -hmm. that's that's the interesting part to me ned feels like he has the upper hand because he has truth she feels like she has the upper hand because she has everything else but the truth yeah well she's certainly not someone to be trifled with obviously has a plan in place and a backup plan in place which would be the whole seducing ned thing right yeah which and maybe and maybe other things too that yeah we probably shouldn't talk about here. But death for them all. Do you think Robert would go that far? Well, yeah. So the death for them all line, just to remind our readers, is Ned thinks that Robert's reaction to learning the true parentage of Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen is that Robert would kill them. All of them. That. And probably all, start yeah. a war with the Lannisters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kill Cersei and Jaime too. And yeah, mm-hmm. what other whatever other Lannisters were lurking around King's Landing. And I would say that this is an overreaction. What do you guys think? From Ned? Yeah. You mean Ned thinking that Robert would do, would go that far? Yes. I think Ned's kind of coming from a place of, of just sitting in that council meeting where Robert just wants Daenerys Targaryen dead, no matter what he, he knows that Robert you know, his reign is spoiled to Eddard because, in part because of the two dead Targaryen children who were killed during the sack of King's Landing. Um, he knows that children 
will sometimes die whether Robert approves of it or not. And but but is he overreacting? I I tend to think that maybe he is a little bit too, but I just don't know. That's maybe what makes Baratheon such a deep character uh, is that you just don't know what he's going to do at any given moment. Uh, well, I I I if history tells us anything about Robert, uh he might kill them immediately and then go back and be like, "Oh, yeah, I overreacted." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he just seems like he's he is a act now, think later kind of guy and frequently realizes that his action was not the right thing. And I think he would kill them all. I don't know. I don't know if it'd go as far as war, like I said, because that's more of a carefully considered action. But yeah, I, I don't I don't know what else. Well, I guess I'll guess I'll, I'll put the question back to you, Brooke. What's the alternative? What else could he banish them or like what would he do? Well, here's the thing. Ned doesn't think of any alternative. He doesn't think about, yeah, a banishment or um, locking them up or I don't know, doing something to them, making them slaves or something. He doesn't consider any alternative other than Robert killing them. And therefore this entire, like let giving Cersei a head start is because of him thinking that will be Robert's reaction, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's the point I wanted to get at is we can speculate all we want of whether Robert would do what he would do. But I think the key thing to focus on here is, how Ned feels Mm -hmm. this whole thing. All Ned can think about is saving children. Mm -hmm. He brings it up three or four times in this chapter, different children, his own children. uh, He brings up Rhaegar's children. He brings up the Baratheon kids. Every decision he makes goes back to that day of the sack of King's landing. When he was in the throne room and saw those poor two dead children, laying at the feet of the Iron Throne. Uh, and that's that's the whole reason, like you said, Brooke, that he's giving Cersei this head start, is he can't let these children be harmed. He even says that in the chapter. He can't let those three children that aren't even his come to harm. It's amazing how that one instance has stuck with Ned for, you know, 15-some-odd years, uh, and it influences every decision he makes, even if it's to his detriment, which we're going to see later in this block of chapters. So the alternative then would be – so we, we should remember that Ned no, does know Triple B really well. Maybe he's not considering these alternatives because he doesn't think they're reasonable alternatives. Again, that's speculation, as Matt points out. But your alternative then is to just let the chips fall and see what Robert does. Yep. It, so trust, trusting him to be a legitimate king and take the right path and everything? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And to me, it's 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 – yeah, I I don't know and I – I don't spend too much time thinking about it, I guess, but I'm thinking more about how Ned's decision making <laughs> is so influenced by protecting children. And you've articulated that really, really well. But here, I think, and we discussed this a lot last episode Ned's injury, his broken leg, and the whole like anxiety and stress of this whole situation, I think it's gotten to him here. Yeah. Because if I had been in that position and been in my whole Ned mind, what I would have done is locked the kids away safely, then told yep. Robert. Put them on right? the boat first. I was he doesn't then he's the getting... to do that. How? He doesn't have the manpower to do that. I would put him on the boat first. Oh, his it was kids. leaving. It was, I thought you were yeah, talking about the Lannister children. kids. I'm sorry. No, I'm talking about the Lannister kids. Oh, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, his own, yes. 
but he wants the Lannister kids to be safe. He wants Robert to know the truth, right? The obvious course of action there is to somehow, I don't even, even if he himself snuck into the kids' rooms and squirreled them away into like the kitchen or something, just somewhere where Robert couldn't immediately get them. So as um, one of you pointed out before, his temper couldn't lead him to doing something rash in the heat of the moment, right? I think that's a great so, plan, but thanks. But but I think they're guarded. <laughs> like I don't think he can just like send his men into the keep and take them, or or do it if he if he had a good leg, go and do it himself. I don't think he'd get away with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think he's doing what he. Well, the he only would, he way could he just use Sansa. Huh? Sansa has full access to the kids. He could have just sent her to say, "Hey, Joffrey, let's go on a little date or something." It, it, whatever the logistics are. Again, he didn't even think about it. He's he's not in his right mind. He's not thinking clearly. He's not thinking smart. Oh, I, is... I think I think he took what he thought was the best option, which was tell Cersei to get the kids out of there. That's going to have a better chance of working than me going to try to steal them and protect them. If Cersei gets them out of here, then they can get away. Yeah, that's him underestimating Cersei, though, and that's also not smart. Has he been on uh, – I, obviously, he turned away the milk of the poppy at the beginning of the chapter when Pacell offered it to him. But has he been on it before? Like, could that also be factoring mm. into his clouded judgment if he's a little hocked up on that stuff? Well, they don't, don't tell us, but I get the impression he's been off of it. I mean, obviously, he was on it very early when it was – when he woke right. up and he was gone for four days or whatever the hell that was. He said he'd slept enough or whatever, so. Yeah, I assume he's been off yeah. of it, but taking some sort of painkillers. But... Anyways, man. Is there anything that else that we want to cover in this chapter? There's a lot, but no, I guess I guess not. Remember, we've got there's about not, we've got a little bit longer lot per, can... per episode, but or per, hmm. per chapter. What else did you want to cover? I don't want to leave it. Well, no, uh, there's not there's not much else that we can cover without speculating what's already covered in the f- future Ned chapters. Like we're going to be discussing it two um, more times. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I like my little anecdote about Pycelle being a little office bitch, but uh, well, he's he, all right. I'll just do it real quick. He's that guy at your place of work that always reminds everyone how right they were on the off time that they get something right. And you just pray that they'll never, ever be right because you know you'll never hear the fucking end of it when because they'll just bring it up over and over and over again. Remember that time when I warned you that Tywin would be angry about your order to kill Gregor? Well, I was right. Like, just never <laughs> when, up about it. Because when Pycelle is wrong, he's very wrong. So he uh, he needs to um, talk up his, his victories. Like he was the one that told Ares to go ahead and open the gates to the Lannisters yeah. during the sack of King's Landing. He's like, go ahead, open your gates. Well, uh, Ty- Tywin is your buddy. Wrong or working for the Lannisters. Yeah, it could question. go either way. But either way, it goes down as a wrong. Yes, his bad <laughs> advice. Yeah. All right, sorry. His who, advice who ledger. Who is the guy who's always right at your workplace? Me. It's Matt. Matt never shuts up about it either. <laughs> Such a smug dude. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Anything else? No, let's move on. All right, Matt, taking on the Daenerys chapter. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go. Kicking with the sun and stars, call him Cal Drogo. She knows just where she gotta go and won't be tarrying. Look how Westerosa comes, Daenerys Targaryen. So we start out on a lovely scene. Uh, Danny's at a Dothraki ceremony where she has been tasked with eating the heart 
of a freshly slaughtered wild stallion. And this heart has not been, you know, thrown on the grill or anything like that. It is a raw heart. Um, the Dothraki tradition is for mothers to eat this this raw heart while they're um, while the baby's in the womb. And the idea is if the mother is able to eat the whole heart without gagging or throwing it up or anything like that, the uh, the child will be strong, swift, and fearless. Whereas if she does uh, spew up some of the some of the heart, um, it will be kind of a weak kid. Um, if you're gonna spew, spew into this. In in a moment that um, I just could hear groaning, hear Brooke groaning clear from Canada, uh, it said the child might be stillborn or come forth weak, deformed, or female. That's <laughs> so. uh... the worst. I could hear it too. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, groans do that. Uh, she manages to eat the whole heart. She'd been practicing for a couple days. Uh, she'd been eating like blood soup or something like that and then kind of starving herself. So she was just hungry. Uh, but she manages to, to choke it all down and everyone's very pleased. Cal Drogo's proud of her and the Dosh Kaleen, Meanwhile, begin prophesying about her son. Now, remember the Dosh Kalin are these kind of old crones. They're the they're former Khaleesis or former wives of Khals. Uh, and the tradition is is that when a Khal dies, the Khaleesi goes to Vaistothrak and lives out the rest of her life there uh, as one of the Dosh Kalin, which are, uh, of course, these these surprisingly for the Dothraki culture, they're these fairly well respected female presences who are the only um, permanent inhabitants of the city and are well respected for their abilities to prophesy and things like that. But they come and say that Danny's child will fill a role which has been prophesied about for generations and centuries by the Dothraki. The child will be the stallion who mounts the world, uh, or as they <laughs> describe it, a... Um, a, a great call who will lead, who will unite basically all the Kalasars and and take over the world pretty much. Uh, at this time, Danny pronounces his name, the child's name, to be Rago, a very cool combination, of course, uh, Dothraki and Targaryen. And uh, they proceed on to the next portion of the day's ceremonies after eating the heart. Um, and we get a touching moment between Drogo and Danny as they're walking to this next portion of the ceremony. Uh, they call each other by cute little pet names, and Drogo's starting to learn the common tongue, and only Danny can understand him. No one else can understand him because of his thick accent. And it's, it's kind of this cute little moment. Uh, until they get to this lake, it's they, a lake that they call the Womb of the World. The Dothraki believe that the first um, Dothraki man came riding out of that lake, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. And uh, that was the start of the Dothraki culture. Danny goes into the water. She washes herself off, takes a bath, washes off all the blood and, and heart residue. Uh, in a in a in a ceremony that seems very reminiscent of a Christian baptism or something, she comes out of the water. Uh, Drogo's incredibly proud of her, and he he manifests that very physically of how proud he is of her. And they engage in a in a in a in a impromptu quickie, 
uh, in front of everybody. And then they head back for the third portion of the night, which is a party. It's party time. Uh, so they've got all these people there. It's like this red carpet event of the Dothraki. Everyone's partying, having a good time, celebrating Danny's pregnancy and the stallion who shall mount the world and all of that. Danny notices, however, that there is no Viserys. He's nowhere to be found and she hasn't seen him. She asks Jorah about it, who tells her that he's been out uh, at the market all day buying wine and also inquiring into hiring cell swords. So hiring a mercenary army. He's getting a little bit um, impatient, as we know, with Khal Drogo, and really wants to get over to Westeros and claim his throne. In fact, he was willing to steal some of Danny's dragon eggs that Illyrio gave her in order to be able to pay for a sellsword army. Uh, and the only reason he didn't is because of Jorah Mormont stopping him. Not too much after they have this discussion, Viserys does enter the party. He does show up. Uh, he's obviously quite inebriated and, worst of all, is carrying a sword, which, of course, is strictly prohibited. It's an offense punishable by death to bear steel, not just shed blood, but even carrying a sword is seen as an event, uh, an offense punishable by death. Uh, and he comes in just, you know, uh, taking over the party, calling himself the dragon, screaming and carrying on and whatnot. Uh, Khal Drogo, in kind of a comedic moment, uh, insults him and starts speaking English, or excuse me, English, the common tongue, and uh, calling him the, the, the beggar king or the cart king. I, I don't remember exactly what it is. Sorefoot king. That's what he calls him. Of course, hearkening back to that time when they made Viserys walk at the back of the Kalasar which was seen as a huge insult. Viserys gets ticked off at this, draws his sword. He's got it pointed right at Danny's belly, right in front of her. Uh, he threatens to take Danny back, as he calls it. He wants a refund um, because he hasn't gotten his army yet. And he even threatens to kill Danny's unborn child, says he'll cut it right out of her. Uh, nope, says Drogo. And uh, Drogo stands up and says, you'll get a splendid golden crown. Um, to which Viserys kind of softens up and he goes, oh, well, that's that's all I really wanted. I can't I can't help. We don't talk about the TV show very much because this is so focused on the books. But this was actually a really cool moment in the TV show. It was played perfectly by the actor who plays Viserys. Like his whole countenance changes and he turns into this innocent little boy who's just like, well, that was all I wanted. That, that was what I wanted. And he's like, OK with it. And then all of a sudden, uh, Drogo's blood riders grab Viserys. They like break his arms and hold him down as Drogo walks over to the cooking fire. He walks over there. He takes off his big belt and this belt is made of gold medallions. And he drops the gold medallions in a cooking pot that's hanging over the fire until it melts down. It turns into this molten gold. And then he takes the cooking pot over to Viserys, where Viserys is still being held down, and he dumps the molten gold over Viserys's head, giving him that golden crown that he promised him. Uh, and Viserys, of course, gone, gone.com. Khal uh, Drogo never sheds blood or anything, just gives him that lovely golden crown. Uh, Daenerys' last thought as the chapter closes out is that Viserys was no dragon because fire cannot kill a dragon. Insane! Oh know, my god! How about that oh. death scene, huh? We all saw it coming, right? Did anyone not think Viserys was going to die at some point? Like, oh, for sure. Coming, right? Not so spectacularly but, and so cleverly. Yeah. What a spectacular death scene. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I would note uh, Fire did not kill him. Uh, he yeah. did. I don't know. Maybe Danny doesn't know the difference. Well, kind of indirectly, right? Like, <laughs> as much fire. as any warrior killed yeah, by a the sword. Gold. <laughs> as much as any warrior killed by a sword was killed by steel forged by fire. Right, yep. So lots of people die by fire, I guess. <laughs> Good yeah. point. Well well said, Scott. Death by brain but, belt is what I call it. But he is certainly not the dragon that she is. She uh, really called upon her inner dragon through this entire chapter yeah. from yeah. the eating of the heart to the <laughs> getting I don't know, what is that move where the dude just lifts his child bride up and plunks her down on top of him? I call that perfection. <laughs> I don't know what anyone else calls it. Oh, man. I don't know if they showed that in the TV show. I don't remember whether they did or not, but I read that and I was like, that scene is I think is you'd hot. remember. They don't, yeah. <laughs> that they scene don't. is hot is all I remember thinking when I read it. But, but, but not for the reasons you might think. I think that that scene is very hot because it shows that, that all this stuff that's happened and, and Matt uh, remarks about how they're a couple and everything and, and these cute moments, it all adds up to Danny being a person that he just can't resist. Right. It's not I don't think it, that's what makes it hot. Right. Oh, no, for sure. I'm not I'm certainly not arguing that it isn't hot. It's totally hot. I just her age sticks oh. with me and, and this emphasizes it. I just have to put a block on it. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to. Otherwise, it's just it's too much. Um, yeah. I would note, Matt, you said you were talking about the sweet moment where they're walking and talking about Rego, the name and everything and how cute it was. Until you remember that at this point she's still covered in blood everywhere. <laughs> she's got like she's got like horse heart stuff stuck in her teeth having this conversation with with Drogo as they walk she's the lake. So That's a turn on for Drogo, I think. Yeah, it's, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was uh, never it's unprecedented in the Dothraki culture to have the type of relationship that Khal Drogo and Danny are developing. And I think it's it's really cool. So, I, it's quite tender. Yeah, we, yeah, we don't know of any. She develops some dugs, and then it's <laughs> and it's off to the sacred city for her. Yeah, thanks for using the the word <laughs> dugs. Dugs, my heavens, George! <laughs> I looked it up to see if it was a real word. He made it up. <laughs> Did he really? But we all know what he we all re, we all knew right away what he was referring to. I swear I've heard that word before. I would have sworn too. But it seems like it's like <laughs> pertains to animals or something. Uh, <laughs> something? Oh no. Oh no, wait. Doug no, I just I just looked it up again. Doug, not Doug's, is the utter teat or nipple of a female animal. There Never mind. I take it back. I'm well, gonna everybody's getting audience. a nice language lesson tonight in addition to yeah. our in-depth analysis. So. Well, I know of a writer who's been using his thesaurus. Yeah. Yes, George. Digging deep. <laughs> Digging deep. for you, gentlemen listening. Don't use this word. Don't use it. <laughs> Ever. Ever. <laughs> Unless you're on a farm and using it in a yeah. way that applies. Yeah. Honey, take hold of that dug. Shoot it straight in my mouth. <laughs> if you're talking to the cow. <laughs> well, yeah. well. Stallion, stallion that mounts the world. Talk yeah. about um, imagery. I just imagine this big horse like humping a globe. Well, it's definitely <laughs> not like the horse is 
riding the world, right? It's well, definitely the horse's dream. It can be. World. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just took it. You guys, I, I didn't look, read into it at, at all, like what you guys did in the notes, but I just thought uh, stallion that mounts the world, like the stallion that controls that that uh, you know the when you mount a stallion, you are its owner. You kind of take ownership of it and you control it. You control where it goes. But the I stallion's just, doing the mounting. Yeah. I think it's just because of, which is it, it goes to your well, point. Well, it's just though. a it's just a language thing. They revere stallions in their culture, right. so it's a it's just a literary reference of him as a horse because that's when the maybe. beast. That when they he revere. does mount, that is exercising a certain amount of authority, perhaps. So I think if they meant it any other way, they would have used the literal translate translation, like the stallion that controls the world, the stallion that authoritates the world. The literal translation from a Dothraki language that doesn't exist? (laughs) Why did they use the literal translation? I'm just just saying (laughs) that if they didn't mean the stallion that fucks the world over, then they would have said something else. I mean, I've thought about this deeply, even to the point of, you know, because it's like this Kalasar that's going to take over the world. He mounts the world. (laughs) I can't believe I'm saying this. He spreads his seed throughout the world. (laughs) Right? Like... Oh, wow. Just a flood of it. Goodness gracious, we've gotten filthy. Oh, it's not filthy. I'm, well, yeah, but I was, um, yeah, I gave this some thought. I just, I, ne- I didn't think of those verbs at all. I just thought it way more figuratively, and you guys put way more thought into it than I did. Yep, I did. Anyways, it's it's very, it's a it's a very compelling title for sure so just just to i just want to beat our beat our audience to dead with it what you guys are actually implying is that they think this is a a a son hopefully according to danny that will just completely take over and screw over the world that's what they're prophesying well it's gonna unite the stars yeah and and take them and take over the world yeah it is yeah it's exactly that they they do believe he'll take over the world um, but that means his, differently his... than screws over the world. Wouldn't yeah. wouldn't they in that in that case? Wouldn't they use the term like just like they, you said, unite the world? Hence my confusion. And maybe it goes back to the language comment that you guys made: is that maybe that those types of verbs just simply don't exist in Dothraki? What's the other phrase that Jorah Mormont said doesn't exist in Dothraki? Like I'm well, sorry. I think it's I'm sorry. Well, they like, talk about they talk about. Uh, paying for things versus gifts and the- right there's a certain phrase on i think it's i'm sorry like danny says apologize to them for me and he says uh, that doesn't exist in the dothraki language yeah. um but uh yeah they are going to take over the world yeah and it's it is a believable prophecy because the whole reason danny got sold to the dothraki was to bring them across the ocean and take over that world and they bring it up, at least the, the interpretation that I'm getting from the prophecy. They say the milkmen in the stone tents will fear his name. That, to me, sounds like people of Westeros whose yeah. skin would seem white. Yeah. Uh, the Dothraki in their stone tents, meaning their, their castles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so. Yeah, it's... for sure. I don't think the Dothraki are so savage that they don't have an awareness of other cultures. Mm-hmm. I think that's settled. And aren't aware that they could be a legitimate threat to other cultures. So yeah. it's exciting. 
What what kind of track record does the Dosh Kaleen have of being right with their prophecies? Do we have any sort of precedence? Like, what's their win loss record when it comes to getting prophecies right? Well, I don't think they've told us, but it seems like they wouldn't keep listening if they weren't right occasionally. Huh. True enough. I also <laughs> don't know if they cast this die very frequently. How often have they proclaimed a stallion who mounts the world and been like, oh, well. <laughs> do they do it to everyone because they hope for better <laughs> donations if they pronounce that like, every time somebody comes through the stallion that mounts the world i don't know if the, like they're so revered i don't know if there's a penalty for being wrong right sounds like there isn't no you guys were both like really disgusted and appalled by the whole tradition of eating the horse heart i thought it was pretty cool I wasn't. I mean, uh, it was graphic. But... Wait a minute. Our resident animal lover loves the, the the path of butchering a horse and eating its heart raw. You love that? Well, they they eat horses anyways. I don't think they were wasting an entire horse. Uh, At least I don't remember reading that. So, I mean, they do take really good care of their animals because it's their form of currency. So I appreciate that. So at least the animals are having a good quality of life before they are <laughs> upcycled. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> what is it that you guys call it? Oh, meat eating. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, carnivore. <laughs> I would just say that, uh, you know, again, uh, the more you know, don't do this. If you're pregnant, uh, eating raw horse blood, probably not healthy for your child. Hmm. Not according to the Dosh Colleen Scott. Yeah. <laughs> And as far as we know, they're 100% right all the time. True. <laughs> yeah, cool hmm. moment, though. It, it was disgusting to read. I did not enjoy it in the show, and this will be the last time I bring it up. I'm sorry. That she almost threw up the heart towards the end of eating it. Because in the book, she is strong the entire time. She's, like, making eye contact ah. with Cal Drogo. She's <laughs> putting that heart away. Okay, okay. Here's where I'm going to be a show apologist for just a second, Brooke. Because I, I saw that note. On the inside, though, as we're reading the chapter, yeah. she's not enjoying it, right? She talks about, like, her stomach just roiling. Or how does she call it? Like, this is, she feels like it could come up. She's yeah. not as strong on the inside as she looks on the outside. How do you pass that on in a television medium, how yeah. she's feeling, right? You get the... Well, the... certainly not a, a ridiculous pantomime of throwing up with your mouth closed, which is what happened in the TV show. Oh, I think you're being a little dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm siding with Matt on this the one. The irony of you saying that. Uh, as as the middle of the road person with opinions on the TV show, uh, I don't worship it like Matt does, and I don't detest it like Brooke does. Worship it? I am I am coming down on Matt's side on this one. I think they had to show visually something uh, to to display something that George, with his incredible pens gravitas. Uh, displays well in the chapter which is she's in pain putting this thing away and physically how do you do that other than trying to fake the vomit i'm I'm with matt on this one maybe it was a poor acting job if you want to come down hard on amelia clark there brooke she's not great i mean <laughs> i'm sorry for calling you dramatic <laughs> but uh Your voice broke at least like three times during that outburst <laughs> worship it <laughs> uh but let's be clear about one thing i do not worship the the show all right all right uh, of trying, all of I us was trying to paint two just two two extremes sure sure of the three of us i probably like it the most in fact not even probably i do yes 
And Brooke, I didn't even know you were watching, so I'm surprised you even saw it. You watched most I, of the first season, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I watched most of the first season. Yeah. I think this is about the time where I was like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, anything else we want to cover in this chapter? Um, I liked, uh, I think it was Matt's note about uh, if Robert found out that Danny's kid would be named Rego, he would flip out. <laughs> It's so true. Rego! <laughs> she doesn't even know. <laughs> yeah. He's over just gnashing his teeth. And, yeah. 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 Jorah's probably like, this won't be good. <laughs> you sure you want to name him that? <laughs> Maybe right. you should just call him Tim or something. <laughs> there are some who call me Tim. <laughs> Apropos. All right, then on to Eddard. 13. Winter is coming Like a dire wolf prowling in the dark He'll take off your head But his friends call him Ned Warden of the North Yeah, he's Eddard Stark So we open with Ned's favorite reoccurring dream. His dead sister, Lyanna, pale blue roses, and blood. Once again, he hears her pleading for him to promise her something, and we still don't know what that promise is. But it must have been a doozy because he's taking it seriously, not even thinking about it, in case we learn from his, like, internal exposition slash brooding. He is woken with a summoning to see the king, who is, unfortunately, rent from, quote, groin to nipple by a wild boar he insisted on killing himself while he was hunting so as was mentioned in the last editor chapter he was originally supposed to be hunting a white stag but the particular deer that they were after had already been killed and ravaged by wolves so we didn't talk about this but take from that what you will in this world of gross symbolism Anyways, it took them two days to get Robert back to King's Landing, and it's pretty obvious that he is not going to make it. When Ned gets to Robert's bedside, Robert throws out Cersei, Renly, and Pycelle, who attempts to offer Robert milk of the poppy. But Robert refuses to keep a clear head while he talks to Ned alone. First, he tells Ned that he was wrong, that they shouldn't kill Danny and her unborn child, and for Ned to do what he can to reverse that order. He thinks that the boar mortally wounding him was karmic retribution for ordering Danny killed. Then he makes Ned write out a decree, making Ned the Lord Regent and Protector of the Realm until Joffrey comes of age. Ned, in a moment of sly wolfiness, changes the wording from my son Joffrey to my heir. So Ned can continue the business of rootling out Lannister bastards from the royal bloodline. Once the decree is signed, sealed, and witnessed, Robert accepts the milk of the poppy. And he asks Meister Pycelle if he will dream and says that he'll give Lyanna his love for Ned. He also asks Ned to take care of his children for him. And note he doesn't ask to see his kids. He's just like dumping the responsibility on Ned like he's dumping the kingdom. And Ned promises to guard them like his own, but is thinking of all the little bear bastards when he says it. So now Ned turns to the Kingsguard and is like, 
what the shit, guys? Apparently, Robert got sloppier drunk than usual. And what do you know? It was a was his Lannister squire, cousin of Cersei, young Lancel, who kept him that way. So kept him with a wineskin in his hand, constantly drunk throughout the whole hunt. Okay, this is getting a little long, so I'll just tie it up. Ned leaves Robert to his milk of the poppy Lyanna dreams. And Renly stops Ned on his way back to his rooms, where Ned is going to go write Stannis about his sweet new gig as king, because it's pretty obvious that Robert isn't going to make it. And Renly's like, dude, now is the time to separate Cersei from her children if you want any hope of saving this kingdom. But Ned brushes him off, saying that it's too soon and he doesn't want to cause a fuss by rounding up kids in the dead of night. So he gets back to his room, he writes a letter to Stannis, he calls Littlefinger to his chambers, and Littlefinger gives him the exact same advice that Renly gave him. Joffrey is king now officially, make the best of a bad situation, get him away from Cersei, and again Ned is like, nope, not honorable, and instead asks Littlefinger to pay off the city watch so Ned will have some manpower when he takes out the Lannister trash and... uh brings in Stannis as the next heir. So Littlefinger agrees to pay off the city watch, names his price, and before the conversation ends, he says to Ned, and I'm going to read from the book here, Mm -hmm. you know why you summoned me here. You know what you want to ask me to do. You know it has to be done, but it's not honorable. So the words stick in your throat. And neither of them actually say what Ned wants Littlefinger to do. And I'm wondering, what is it? Is it to kill off the kids? Is it to, I don't know, put Ned on the throne? I have no idea. Do you guys have any idea? I always took it as, uh, as, as paying off the, um, paying off the city watch. Yeah, me too. Oh, really? I did not take that. I thought the whole paying off the city watch was a whole nother conversation. They're like, yep, no problem. Littlefinger's going to do it. No, I hmm. I, took, yeah, I took it to be that that was that last conversation where he's basically saying you you want me to do this you don't want to ask because it's not honorable but you want you want me to deliver the city watch for you so that we can complete this takeover. Yeah, okay, said, fair enough. Yeah, maybe I'm looking into it too deep. Whatever the case, this wasn't an honorable thing for Ned to ask, but him changing the wording on Robert's written decree that. And, and lying to Robert about protecting his children. And furthermore, not telling Robert on his deathbed who his children were. What, what is this like crazy roller coaster ride of honorableness that Ned is riding right now? It's, it's a razor thin line, isn't it? Sure is. He's really <laughs> picking and choosing right now. Yeah, good point, both of you. Um, and what's funny is, is, you know, the reason I always loved edard at the beginning was because of his moral stance on things and now here i am cheering him on for <laughs> doing doing the doing the less moral or taking he was the less moral so road. uncompromising and now he's just and now he's either way like you guys said like he's uncompromising on some things but uh, not on the others again the kid the kids come up and he's not compromising there 
Uh, he says he'll not have children dragged out of their beds in the dead of night, which to me reminded me again of the Targaryen children being killed mm. during the sack of King's Landing. I don't, he wasn't talking about them, of course, but the imagery was there for me. But that's one thing he's still not willing to compromise on. Well, uh, <laughs> so. But through all of this, he's putting his own children in significant danger. Yeah, yeah, for I, sure. Which is what I was going at after before when I cor- incorrectly assumed what you guys were talking about uh, in saying that I think he should have put those girls on a boat well before he started bringing up all this stuff. So I want to go back to Ned a little bit and what you guys said in the previous Ned chapter about not uh, not assuming that Robert was going to kill the children, not assuming Robert was going to do anything. Let Robert act, right? He's almost like protecting Robert from something, Right. Well, here he is on his deathbed. And again, Ned is protecting Robert from the truth. Right. It's like, what is he afraid of? What is he? If anything, this should be a chance for Robert to to right some wrongs. Right. And Robert's actually taking that path. Robert is saying, Robert is saying, OK, I'm wrong about the 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 uh, Targaryen girl. Try to undo it. Right. Maybe this is a chance for Robert to undo some things that he needs to undo. Stop protecting him. He's the yeah. king. Like, let him do do something, you know? Like, you have, yeah. you, you, it's not your job. Your job is to be honest with your friend. Oh, yeah. Robert even says, well, he's like sort of delirious and talking to Ned. Ned, you were the only one who stood up to me. You were right all along. I'm so glad you're going to be ruling the kingdom. You're the only one who can do it. Blah, blah, blah. And still, Ned did not take that opportunity. He's, like, betraying that 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 last dying love that Robert has for him. Yeah. He even uh, thinks that same thought that he's had before, which is the lies that we tell for love. right? And it's, it's funny to think that it seems like the more Ned loves somebody, the more he lies to him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? you're totally right. Out, like of a Catelyn, sense of, out of a sense of protection, um, right? Right, yeah. But it, it's, but it's, it's well-intentioned, but certainly. But it's still lies. Right. Like, tell him the truth. If you're not going to tell him now, when are you going to tell him? Never. He's so, I don't know, I, I guess I, if it hasn't been made abundantly clear through this podcast, I'm an atheist. So to me, when I'm lying on my deathbed, and I, uh, that moment when I lie on my deathbed to the point where I'm actually dead, the only thing that changes for me is the stuff I learn from that moment where I'm almost dead to the moment where I actually die. And the things that I can do to contribute to the world before it actually happens, Right. So there's in my brain there's no letting him rest peacefully with the truth. There's you know there's nothing like that. There's no there's no soul to to rest, right? But I don't know, Matt. I guess I'm interested from somebody that 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 you know has has faith in the afterlife and things like that. Is that a rest easy? Like you don't want to disturb his slumber with the truth? Let him go easy with I mean if I did believe in something like that I would think like, well, as soon as I'm up there with my wings, I'm looking down and I'm seeing what's happening and I see the truth anyway. What difference does it make whether he knows now or when he sees it as an angel up there? Like, right, that, that's, the, that's the thought that I originally had was if you believe in an afterlife, anything similar to the afterlife I believe in, uh, you know, he's going to pass on from this life to the next and know what Ned was lying about the whole time. Immediately. But uh, yeah, so it doesn't help too much to sit and lie to him. I was very short-sighted, well-intentioned short-sightedness on Ned's part. He just wanted Robert to be reasonably comfortable in his dying moments but um, and not be all pissed off. Uh, but then there's the question of would he have been pissed off or, or what would have happened. So. Let, me, let, me just, let me just take it uh, one step further. 
If anyone listening to this podcast is ever at my bedside when I'm about to pass, don't protect me from pain. I'm about to go through the worst experience a human can have, which is death. Just hit me with it. I can fucking take it. <laughs> Will do, Captain. If, if Robert would have just said that before he died, maybe it would have been different. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I think we can also contribute this to Ned's complete lack of urgency. And like anything... We see Renly being like, Ned, act now. We see Littlefinger, Ned, act now. We see Cersei. She actually disappeared from Robert's bedside to go and act. Well, Ned is all, I don't know, just not as motivated by that urgency. It all goes back to what I said before, and I'm sorry for beating this dead horse. It goes back to the kids. Mm. That's the reason he gives. He doesn't want to drag kids out of their bed and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh. It's so amazing how that one instance going back clear to the sack of King's Landing still influences Eddard to this day, even to his detriment. Yeah. No, you're totally right. You're not beating that. You're really bringing it to light. And uh, you're right. It is really just his – yeah, every every action he's taken has been based on that experience. Okay. Mm -hmm. So so you think him – uh, not telling Ned the, uh, Robert the truth on his deathbed about his kids is not about respecting Robert's last hours and letting him rest easy. It's about protecting the kids because you think Robert's going to pull out the handle and murder them? We'd moved on from that. I, I was talking about what we just said about um, Renly, oh. him not acting when not Renly acting. came to him, not acting when Littlefinger came to him, yeah, those, okay. those instances. Yeah, on first reading, all that stuff from Ned feels me- seems measured. You're reading this, sure. you're like, okay, good. He's taking his time. He's making sure to do the right thing. He's, you know, reading through it multiple times. You're like, eh, you no, know, and, and maybe because no. it's, you know, like, <laughs> maybe it's because you know kind of what's happening now. But it's, it's just like you in this city, you need to you need to move with a sense of urgency. And maybe he's not just just not used to that in the slow north, right? Where things that freeze or, before you take action. Yeah, or like Cersei said, he is playing in the Game of Thrones. He doesn't want the throne. He doesn't want to win it. And so he's dead because there's right. only two things that can happen. You're on the throne or you're dead in that game. Yeah, so, according to Cersei anyway. We, but, yeah. but, but that applies to people that are playing it. Uh, he's not playing it. Right. Or he's least, trying not to. Yeah. Well, he's trying not to, but he has been sucked into <laughs> it by becoming Lord Regent. Every time I so. think I'm out, they pull me back in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was going to leave on a ship. It's like, damn it! <laughs> he had to go to that uh, that one errand with Littlefinger. Ruined yeah. everything. And that was uh, Godfather, I think, part three. Yes. Which is awful film, but, you know, that had a good, it was a good moment. <laughs> I, I had, maybe this can be our song of the, of the podcast, unless you guys can think of a better one, which I'm totally open to. But there's a song by one of my favorite bands, which I've tried with mild success to ram down Scott and Brooks' throats. Uh, the hold steady. Um, yeah. And, uh, there's one, there's one song, um, called soft in the center and it's got a great line in it. I actually had this song just playing in my head, like almost the, every Ned chapter that we read in this block, I had this song playing in my head and there's one line where he says, you can't tell people what they want to hear. If you also want to tell the truth, uh, you can't tell people what they want to hear. If you also want to tell the truth. Yeah. So fitting. Yeah. yeah it's, it fits. 
for sure. That's Anyways. the song. That's the one. Yeah. For a three Ned chapter episode. Yeah, no <laughs> Speaking of, is there anything else we want to cover here? Um, I don't know. Uh, we didn't really get to the Renly stuff. Do we want to? No. Well, let's wait and chat about it in a future chapter. All right. All right. Uh, Scad, John, please. Where well, we're going up north where the winter's cold and the icicles bloom like the bluest rose. We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. So, John. John's ploy works. You remember the last John's chapter. John has gone to see Maester Eamon to try and get him to push uh, Samuel Tarly in through to the Night's Watch, even though he's not quite, quote-unquote, ready. Um, well, this ploy works, and Sam Tarly is passed in to the Night's Watch, along with John and uh, uh, Pip and Gren and several others. And uh, in this chapter, they all head over to the Sept after uh, Sam has told the good news to John. And all the heads of the orders arrive. Um, Mormont, the old bear, reminds them what the life of a crow is like. No wives, no sons, no titles, no names, no honor, no no any of that stuff, right? They will all... See. He's kind of giving them the layout of the day. It's almost like the <laughs> the guy at the beginning of a seminar that says, this is what we're going to do today. Uh, gives them the lay of the, <laughs> lay of the day, right? That's um, just good presentation skills. That's right. Good job, old bear. So mm -hmm. they're going to say their vows together when night gathers. And this is your last chance to run. We'll talk a little bit more about that too. John and Sam choose to say there's say their oath to the old gods, and to do that, they have to journey beyond the wall. Then next, the boys are assigned to their jobs. So you may remember, I think Brooke laid it out reasonably well in a previous chapter. There are stewards, builders, and rangers. Uh, rangers kind of have the most prestige, and usually they end up being the best fighters and horsemen and, and those kinds of things. And everything goes, uh, stewards are, of course, people that, that help with chopping wood and doing laundry and cooking meals and all those kinds of things. And builders take care of the wall, take care of the castles, try to keep things uh, kept up. Anyway, everything goes according to expectation uh, with the namings until John is named to the stewards and is flabbergasted, insulted, discombobulated, and any number of other adjectives you could probably think of. He's, uh, to, to this news, he's angry and sharp. Uh, demanding to know his duties, which will include fetching water for uh, the old bear's bath, because they've told him that he's going to be uh, Mormont's personal steward, uh, his personal assistant, if you will. It'll be getting water for his bath, taking his letters, washing his small clothes, attending meetings. He's fuming, but Sam sets him straight and tells him, John, you idiot, they're grooming you for command. You're not just going to wash his clothes, you're going to be with him in the meetings, you're going to know everything he knows, you're going to be his squire in battle. You're going to be right next to the leader of this whole thing. And John then just feels like an idiot. He feels ashamed, admits as much <laughs> before they head off to take their vows. Uh, as they go, they've got to pass under the wall. It's the first view I think we have of under the wall. But there's basically a, a path, a tunnel, if you will, carved through the bottom of the wall uh, that emerges out onto the other side. And then they have to go through the haunted forest about, uh, I think it's about a mile and a half um, that they have to walk to get to, to get to an enormous grove of weirwoods. Ghost has come along as well. Uh, he takes off as soon as they get into the open air from under the tunnel, uh, takes off to presumably go hunting. Uh, the group makes their way to the grove of weirwoods, uh, they, they, and John notes how odd it is to see this many of them together. He says there are nine when two or three is customary. Uh, and then the Night's Watch 
the, the new Night's Watchmen to be, say their vows. And I'm just going to read them real quick uh, from the text because I think they're powerful and we talk about them a lot. So it'll be good to have their words here. So here goes. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch for this night and all the nights to come. Woo-hoo. Solid. You're in. Great reading. And that is the Night's Watch vow. And uh, they stand up. They're all happy. And they're about to head back. One of the guys says something about the woods being scary at night. <laughs> and they're about to go. And then Ghost returns. And in his mouth is a hand. And that is how the chapter ends. Wow. So, Scott, you should probably be expecting a call from our friends at Radio Westeros. They're going to recruit you. Oh, that was good. Thanks, man. <laughs> that was that was worthy of Radio Westeros. Oh, thanks. I got uh, you know a tiny dramatic finger in my body. Tiny. Not literally. That's gross. <laughs> uh, oh man! Like I ate it or something? I don't know. Where, I don't know what you guys were thinking. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Uh, so regarding the oath, there I, it's interesting because I th- I hadn't read it in a while, but. There isn't anything about sleeping around in it, mm-hmm. just about marrying and fathering. And that's mm. interesting. Like because you hear you hear them talk about um Molestown and people, you know, not wanting you know, wanting to have sex but can't and all this stuff. Well sounds like you can. There's some loopholes there. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely move. looking for loopholes. Um, I think it's important though to just look at the overarching reason for the vows of the night's watch. And I think that's to separate yourself from any sort of commitment. Distractions right? and commitments, yeah. Yeah, so that you're you're solely committed to the watch. And so that's probably why they don't say you can't have sex in there. Because while that can lead to a certain form of commitment, it's not like um, you know, fathering a child or having a wife waiting for you. Yeah, at most it so. might be eighty eight seconds of commitment, right? <laughs> if that. God's a record. <laughs> I I also wonder if it doesn't harken back to a time when the Night's Watch was a a stronger, larger force. And if there was like um, a secret band of Thebes type situation happening there. What do you mean? um, So in ancient Greece, there was a sect of the Thebian army called the Sacred Band, which is made up of 300 men. It was 150 gay couples and they were such a successful army or little i don't know unit (laughs) (laughs) is that the terminology i have no idea um (laughs) i like it (laughs) because they fought to protect their lovers in battle and it made them more vicious and more ferocious and in fact um they never surrendered they were only defeated because they were all killed protecting their commander Wow. So, like, like at least in in uh, legend, they were an incredibly effective military force. 
So I just wonder if the no sex thing is left out because if at any time that was the situation up there, because Lord knows there's no women up there being like, huh, this is a great place to settle down. Chilly, (laughs) barren, (laughs) full of brooding dudes in black. I love it. That's a a really interesting thought and intriguing thought. So many directions we could go off of that, Brooke. I I had a, a... significantly more shallow thought as I was reading that that chapter, but slightly related in that we don't hear a lot about any type of homosexual relationships going on on the wall, which surprises me a little bit. I feel like it's probably happening. We're yeah. just not hearing about it. Not hearing about it. We are getting this. We are getting all of this. All of our whole look at the wall comes from Jon Snow's point of view. So, yeah, it's very possible that he's just not seeing it. Yeah. yeah Nobody's well, hitting on him. Mm-hmm. We know he's good looking. Why? Is I know why, except for Sam. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to get oh, too political. But depending on okay, depending on who you believe, somewhere between five and thirteen or so percent of the population of the world is homosexual. So yeah, mm-hmm. you'd think some of that would be going on at the wall at some place. The question mm-hmm. is whether the situation that you're talking about, Brooke, uh, where there's you know, women around, uh, would result in more people coming to those affections, which is a that's a way bigger nature nurture debate that I don't want to have on this podcast, but um... yeah, no, for sure. It would, it's just interesting, something interesting to think about. I love sure. I, as we, we all love the culture up on the wall and I love thinking about yeah. it in its heyday, like when it was really strong yeah. and these vows really evoke what that feeling of loyalty in and, totally. and, and, and your, your calling must have been when you took those oaths, when there was thousands of other men who were fighting for the same thing you were. Yeah, you can tell that the, the purpose of the watch was a lot more poignant back then. Yeah. These are all these guys who are signing up now are summer soldiers, you know, they're not even soldiers. They're the dregs <laughs> of society, essentially. Even the Which, Lord Commander was yeah. like, you friggin' rapers and thieves. Yeah. I, which yeah. brings me to my my point about one thing that Mormont says earlier in the chapter about, hey, if you want to go, go now before you say your vows. Most of these guys mm. can't go anywhere, right? Right. They've yeah. been sent here as punishment or, or as an alternative to punishment for a crime they committed. Darian, uh, I think in this chapter, uh, as John's complaining about his his life as a steward that's coming up, Darian reminds him, you know what? Screw you. This is the thing that didn't go your way. I had a woman bed me and then tell me that I would tell her father that I raped her. Like, how's that for bad luck? Screw you. And yeah. Darian can't leave. None of these guys can leave. I mean, not most of them, right? It's just kind of a weird thing for Gurm to throw in there. Like, here's your last chance to go. <laughs> just kidding. I wonder if that was just part of, you know, Mormont's spiel as well. Back when guys were volunteering uh, mm. in yeah. droves. I don't know. We do know that back in the day, especially in the north, a lot of you know second and third sons and stuff of northern lords were would sign up for the watch. It was seen as a position of honor. Yeah. So not no mo. No, not anymore. I really appreciated the arc though that John went through, seeing Sam's reaction to getting assigned to the stewards and how happy Sam was and how he accepted this position with courage and, and I guess Sam's sort of form of honor and uh, how he kind of swallowed his pride and was, uh, I don't, I can't remember if the end of the chapter, if he actually committed to the position or not, whatever the case, um, he stopped being a big whiny baby about it. 
Yeah, well, there think, was some think, major think, whininess going on. I think Sam yeah. painted the truth. As soon as Sam said that, they're grooming you for command. Oh, right, right, John right. John had yeah, this yeah. thought about, about... John's like, ego-fed. Okay, well, I'm all right. <laughs> he, he had this thought about, oh, yeah, you know, Ned did take Rob into his council meetings and stuff to kind of teach him the ways. Like, oh, I see. This is This is what it means. Maybe I'll, you know, I should be, I should, I should be a man about this and take it for what it is. And, you know, maybe there's a silver lining to that cloud. I think he's still Mm -hmm. upset, but yeah, you're right. His, his growth curve as seemingly everything with John was accelerated and he realized his error immediately copped to it and kind of said, okay, I'll be all right. Instead of Mm -hmm. brooding about it for weeks, which does happen. Uh, I can tell you a little story. Christmas is upon us. Uh, or or will be about upon us by the time this episode gets released. Specifically, though, the time where you shop for and wrap presents for your little ones uh, is is happening. And I have a sibling, and we'll call that sibling Pat. And Pat... (laughs) Who's that? It's Pat. ...was convinced (laughs) that Pat was going to get uh, an electric keyboard for Christmas one year. So convinced that seeing an electric uh, electric keyboard-shaped package under the tree two weeks ahead of Christmas time or so was convinced that that's what that package was and didn't look at the tag or, or looked at the tag and was certain that it said Pat's name on it. Uh, but Christmas arrives, Pat goes to pick up the gift and, and uh, starts to go uh, unwrapping it. And Pat's mom says, that gift isn't for you. That's for grandma. And Pat loses it. And Pat decides to have a sour disposition for the rest of Christmas. And Pat's family may or may not have this on video. (laughs) And may or may not break it out occasionally. We need to put that on YouTube and tweet it. And this is just, when I, when I read this from John, that's what I thought of. It's like, John, John gets this news and he's just sulking about it. Like this, it was never the way it was going to be. And you're just finding out about it now. And you're just sulking and you're just, being a 14-year-old about it. And Pat Pat was much younger, to Pat's credit, than 14. But a similar story that reminded me of. And, and am I being too hard on John by saying that he only came out of it because his ego was fed? Like, would, if he, would he have reacted differently if nothing about being groomed for leadership came up and Sam was just like, dude, just chill out, you know? To be um, fair, he does have a certain measure of stark arrogance. Yeah. However, he didn't get excited about the thought of leading the Night's Watch. I think he was just mollified by the fact that there was a good reason for him not being made um, a ranger. But you know what? It wasn't just – one thing that pissed him off was he thought that Alistair Thorne had everything to do with Mm. it. And he thought that that was – yeah, so good point, Brooke. You know, he was – he was – yeah, he was mollified by the fact that maybe it wasn't Alistair with this personal vendetta against him. Yeah, that's part of it. But I do think that, I think John does feel like he's special. You know, like, I don't know. Or he wants to be special. Well, I think he knows that he is. He sees how be- how much better he is than some of these people. Sure. Some of the skills taken to be a ranger. It's it's silly to be blind to it. I mean, it's 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 like, uh, gosh, I don't know, Matt. In, uh, I can't believe I'm gonna, I'm going to go the religious route, but you get callings in in uh, in certain religions, right? Like they ask you to perform certain certain things. This isn't just for your faith. My my dad was called uh, when the religion I was raised in to help with finances of the church because he was in that field. And, you know, it's a skill that fit him. 
if he was called to do something like count Bibles, you know, or something, like maybe he'd have been like, oh, well, I don't really want to do that. That That's not where I fit. Why don't you let me do this, which I'm much more suited for? I don't think mm-hmm. it's... I don't think it's that bad to to note when it's something's a bad fit or to even to disagree with it. And I think John has a right to to view the situation as as it is truly that he's better than a lot of these guys at these skills and to feel hurt by it. I don't think it's wrong necessarily. What's wrong is letting it change his life and affect his disposition forever, right? Mm. Pat. I can buy that. Electric Good keyboard. Point. <laughs> Uh, that brings up a good point too that I we've talked about, but worth bringing up again, maybe just for a little bit. The Night's Watch, at least uh, in my mind of what I can think of in the world that at least we know of right now of Westeros, is probably the only organization where no matter what your past or what family you were born into, you can rise up to the highest ranks of leadership potentially. Yeah, and that's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah, it also might have. I don't know if it did, but John might have seen this as. They told me that I could rise up in, in the Night's Watch. Them not making me a ranger is proof that I'm still just a bastard to them. Right. Maybe he, maybe he had a little bit of that. That doesn't say anything like that in the text, but maybe he's got a little bastard baggage dangling on for the ride. I think that's always there. Yep. Um, anything else we want to cover about this chapter? Yeah, the white fur and red eyes like the trees. So Ghost has white fur and red eyes. Like the trees, the bark and, and tree leaves. Or wood trees? Yeah, just a, a nice, a nice image. Uh, and then <laughs> you rubbing my hands together. Can you hear that through the microphone? <laughs> yes. And then uh, just yeah, just the fact that uh, you know, ghost found a fucking hand. <laughs> a black. Yeah. Hand. Let's not talk. Let's not <laughs> neglect to talk about how the chapter ended. Yeesh. Yes. Yeah. A black hand, and the last we heard about black body parts was in the prologue way way back when mm-hmm. months and months ago in our first episode so yeah finally so, finally some some action beyond the wall maybe this is just my complete aversion to horror films i hate them but the whole what? time i was expecting uh, uh the others to attack them when they went out behind the wall to get, to take their vows. I was so scared that I was going to turn the page and the others were going to be all over them. Well, if you're a sentient being, as the others appear to be, seems like that would be a great push for, place for an ambush every once in a while. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They, have to, they had to walk a significant distance from the wall. Yeah, I thought That's it was a mile and a half, scary. but I didn't note it specifically. I think it was close to that. Maybe the trees were protection. Yeah. The old gods aren't right. going to take any others walking around. Um, okay to move on? Yeah. Yeah. Alright. Okay, Matt, please take away the last editor chapter of this episode. Winter is coming Like a dire wolf prowling in the dark He'll take off your head But his friends call him Ned Warden of the North Yeah, he's Edward Star. Okay. Eddard uh, wakes, awakes one morning to the sound of hoofbeats, and he finds out that the Lannister men are drilling right outside his window. Uh, he considers it maybe just Cersei flexing her muscles, essentially. Uh, he goes down to breakfast. Of course, Sansa is ticked at him because she can't say goodbye to Joffrey. Uh, Eddard's not even letting her communicate with him. 
but Arya, on the other hand, gets permission to go to one final dancing lesson with Sirio. Oh, Sansa's pissed as always. Ned gets no respect. Uh, I get no respect. Um, <laughs> soon after, Pycelle arrives and informs Eddard that Robert has died, as everyone was expecting. So Ned call immediately calls a meeting of the small council. They all arrive one by one. Um, Baelish gives him a nice wink, wink when he walks in, say, stating that he's uh, taking care of what Ned needed him to take care of, which we all know is buying off the gold cloaks, or that's what we can assume. He also finds out uh, that Renly is no longer present in King's Landing. He has left. He has fled the city. Uh, this troubles um, Ned a little bit. He was kind of hoping on maybe going back to Renly and asking for those 100 armed men that Renly had offered him earlier, or at least using them as a backup plan. Uh, then Ned reveals to the small council that Robert had named him regent, and he asks for the council's support in upholding that regency. Of course, this being the regent would mean that he would effectively rule the kingdom uh, he would remain the hand of the king. Joffrey would be the king, but because Joffrey is so young, Ned would be entrusted to make all of the major decisions and effectively rule the kingdom uh, and kind of tutor Joffrey until he's ready to, to take the reins. I think it's interesting that he did not get a ver even a verbal commitment from anyone on the small council before they were called out uh, to go meet with Joffrey in the throne room. They all go, um, and uh, when they arrive, they find Joffrey seated upon the Iron Throne. He's surrounded by all the members of the King's Guard except for Selmy, who is with Ned, uh, as being a member of the small council, and Jamie, who of course is no longer in the city. Uh, Cersei is also present next to her, her pride and joy, little Joffrey. Um, Joff asks for all of the counselors, including Ned, to swear fealty to him. Ned then delivers them the letter that Robert had uh, dictated to him, saying that he'd be the regent. Cersei reads it and promptly rips it up, saying that Joffrey's the king now. doesn't matter what the old king said. Uh, screw you, Ned. She does say that if he bends his knee and swears fealty to Joff, then he will, Ned will be allowed to return to Winterfell and live out the rest of his days. Ned's not standing for that. He's uh, sticking to his guns. He announces that Stannis is the true heir, implying that the Baratheon children, or Cersei's children as we should call them, are not legitimate. Swords are drawn. Things get tense. Uh, Ned kind of tragically is like, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to call for my gold cloaks to intervene. Now, the gold cloaks, of course, are the police force of King's Landing, who Ned, through Littlefinger, had bought off. And they were supposedly supposed to be on his side. And there were uh, many of them in the throne room at the time that all of this is happening. So he calls for the gold cloaks to take the the Lannister, uh, Cersei, and the kids into custody while they work all this out. And uh, they approach as if they're going to do so, but then the gold cloaks, who Ned had just bought again through Littlefinger, begin slaughtering Eddard's men right in front of him. Uh, the chapter ends with Littlefinger confronting Ned during this chaos. He uh, removes 
a knife from Eddard's person, the same knife that was used in the assassination attempt on, attempt on Bran. Um, it says, as his men died around him, Littlefinger slid Ned's dagger from its sheath and shoved it up under his chin. His smile was apologetic. I did warn you not to trust me, you know. End of chapter. Bam! Woof. So, all of Ned's decision-making that we've been questioning throughout the last two chapters has come to a head. What has happened? Well... Are we surprised? The rug getting yanked out from under Ned. Well, um, yeah, that, that's that's part of the rug. Uh, part of the rug to me is Cersei's just... Uh, you said she read it. I don't even know if she read the letter. She just completely dismisses it. New world, new rules, don't care. Rip it up. Just like... it. I think it just completely turned the scene on its head. So yeah, it says she just glanced at the words. Yeah. So basically what she's saying is, uh, so, so Ned went in with this whole plan. I'm going to give the letter to Cersei. She's going to have to read it. People are going to hear what the words say. And then they're going to be on my side because the truth says that these kids aren't true heirs and that they don't belong there. Right. And so that, that's how this is all going to shake down. Cersei's just like, eh, I don't care. Go on. Mm-hmm. And there's probably some Doesn't of that matter. I get no respect from uh, for Ned, from Cersei, too. Like, I'm trying to protect you, Cersei. What are you doing? I don't like you, but I'm still trying to protect you and your kids. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I, I loved Cersei's indifference about the letter. She was like, oh, this has no bearing on my plans. Right. I'll just get rid of it. It doesn't mean anything. Meanwhile, she's got her son seated on the throne, uh, wearing clothes that have both the Baratheon's stag and the Lion of the Lannisters embroidered on them, as he's accustomed to wearing. Yeah, and they they are very confident in their position. The Lannisters are. It makes me think of when Bronn won Tyrion's life in the Vale, and um, Liza was like, "Oh, well, uh, there was a there was a trial by combat." Uh, there's a clear winner. You are free to go because that was the law. That is what the law says. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember like any other instances where it was very clear that the law was being followed, except that we're seeing a lot of tradition and um, rights being followed with the Dothraki and the Night's Watch. Actually, like it, like it's very set. It's very it's very. This is how it is. So this, this is, is the way things are be. done. Yeah. Hmm. And Cersei's like, nope. And she can, she can absolutely do it because she has Joffrey in her power. Both Renly and Littlefinger told Ned, get Joffrey away from Cersei, make this happen. And then you can control the outcome of the kingdom. You know, whatever it is that you, you want that to be. The first step is everybody recognizes Joffrey as the next king. So you got to get in there. And he lost his opportunity, and so Cersei isn't going to wait around. Well, the question is posed in the notes. What could Ned have done differently? So we, we hear these people warning him, right? Renly and others warning him. Like, what could he have done to get in there? I, I know, Brooke, in the previous discussion you said, well, just go <laughs> capture them. I, I would I, – I, I go with my second plan, which is to send Sansa in. <laughs> well, and All right, we don't have he, the had, it, he had Renly – Renly came and came up and offered his services to him. What if he had just accepted Renly's offer in the first place? Yeah. Um, also, when he told Cersei that she should just leave, she was like, "Maybe you should just leave." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> More yeah. speculation, but I wonder if she would have even allowed him to really return to Winterfell. 
I, yeah, I was wondering the same thing as you were going through your summary, Matt, whether that was just lip service or not. Yeah. Um, he'd but, be, but, but if he quote takes, unquote, attacked by brigands on his way home, you know? Sounds like a good deal, though, right? Fine. Mm-hmm. I'm out of here. That's what I wanted from the beginning. That's what he wanted. Just get me yeah. out of here. I don't care. Just my friend's dead. Get me out of here. But I, maybe he suspects, like I do, that they wouldn't have honored that. I don't know. Yeah, uh, he's he's still in the camp of the law is the law, and we must make this right. And there yes, can't be yeah. a bastard sitting on the throne. We got the rightful heir in there, and yeah, he's in big trouble for it. But uh, I just remembered when Peter said that he was going to help Ned by paying off the city watch. He said, "I swear on the love I have for Catelyn," and then like complete one eighty, and joined up with the Lannisters. So interesting that he would go back on that. Well, yeah. it's just, it's, <laughs> yeah, it just goes to show how devious he is, right? Tell Ned what he needs to hear. If I swear for the, on the love of Catelyn, then he'll believe me. And, and Ned should have known, you know, he, Peter already did something for the love of Catelyn once, remember? And it involved Starks, <laughs> particularly Eddard's older brother. And uh, uh, Peter got the, crap beaten out of him when he tried to do something for the love he had for Catelyn. He's not going to do it again. Like He's not going to stick his, Ned, his, his neck out for Ned or, or you know, <laughs> it's just not going to yeah. happen. Maybe this just seems so harsh and surprising because Peter's never outright gone back on his word. He's always kind True. of danced around shady, it, been manipulative. Yeah. yeah, shady, jokey about it. Scott's and favorite word. Say it, Scott. Backdoorsy, man. Yeah. <laughs> yes, totally backdoorsy. <laughs> but for for this this like move, he he fully just bald faced lied. Yeah. Like yeah, I'll help you out, Ned. Then <laughs> he took the cash and he did the exact opposite. So I feel like almost like he's been playing up into this move, which was to get Ned out of power and uh, the Lannisters in power. That's certainly how it appears. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's it goes back. So in the previous chapter, Brooke, the one you were covering in the middle there, uh, the, the second editor chapter in this in this podcast, um, Rhett, Peter and Ned have a whole discussion about, well, what if you do just let Joffrey take the throne? And, you know, you can rule and I can be your partner and we can both rise and get money and status and power and all this stuff. And Ned turns Mm. him down, right? He's like, no, no, we got to get Stannis. To which Peter has said, Stannis isn't going to help either of us. So Mm -hmm. I don't know whether he's taking sides with the Lannisters or whether he's just looking out for himself again. He's like, look, this is the best way for me to make some coin. That's a great point. Very self-serving and... But, the way to go. but again, somebody else besides Ned might have been in that conversation with Peter in the last chapter and been like, he's painting a picture here that really, really benefits him to do the opposite of what I'm asking him to do. But I'm sure honor will make him do the right thing. Right? <sighs> he loves my wife so much. Anybody else would have been like, I can't trust this guy. His his benefit is in direct conflict with what I'm asking him to do. Yeah, I'm married to the woman that he is completely enchanted with even today. Oh, yeah, and my big brother almost killed him once. <laughs> and he has nothing to gain by Stannis taking the throne because he'll be replaced from his position immediately. Right. Even if you forget all the old stuff, where is he going in his life that Stannis is going to help versus where he is now that he could help with the Lannisters? It doesn't add up. 
Yeah. I think, Matt, you put it well in the notes. Ned's downfall in the throne room is the same as always. He expects everyone to follow his code of honor. And that's just ludicrous. It's just completely unrealistic. This this starkly, <laughs> get what I said, starkly, demonstrates how few friends Ned has at court. He, he had no one to turn to well, except yeah, Littlefinger. Yeah, he he's not making sure that anyone capitalizes on his rule. He's not, not handing out yeah, tracts of land or great contracts or paying off bribes or anything like that. He's just like, honor will rule this land. It's going to be great. It's going to work out. It. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and maybe, like that works. Eventually. maybe that works in the north, but that's just not how it works here. And he, it's been, how long has he been here? Five months? I don't know how long it's been, but it's been a while. And he just hasn't learned. Like, that's not how it works here. You mm-hmm. know, it's all about what, how you can advance yourself. It doesn't matter. Honor is out the, out the door. Yeah, Littlefinger actually said it well. As far as who the city watch will follow, they have no loyalty to any particular figurehead. They have loyalty to the coin that pays them. And that goes for everybody in King's Landing. Yeah, right. And how, how long, do, do we know how long... Ned's been trying to get his kids out of King's Landing. It feels like he's mentioned it. I mean, I know we've had a lot of Ned chapters lately, but he's like, oh, yeah, Wednesday. Oh, yeah, Wednesday. Wednesday, Wednesday. Like, how long have they been trying to get out? And he, and he put the exodus in the hands of Tomard. Like, yeah. Come on, man. Fat Tom. Fat Tom. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Put your God, kids on the boat and get them out of there peace. before you start all this crap, man. Well, and yeah. I, I make the point partially because... He, it's taken him X number of days. I'll try to avoid any math. It's taken him X number of days to get his family ready to go. And yet he offers this deal to Cersei and expects them to have been gone immediately. He doesn't mm-hmm. give them X number of days. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. He, I don't know well, what he expected. Fair... When, at some point he should have woken up and been like, uh, she's not gone yet. <laughs> she's not going. And he did right? do that. But he's like, well, I guess I just got to do what I got to do. Yeah. <laughs> Ned. Mm, okay, so we can all agree Ned is screwed. Anything else we want to cover in this revealing chapter? Uh, I'm excited to see what happens next. <laughs> Me too. Well, let's talk about it. But before we do, next episode, we will be covering, which will be episode 11, Aria 4. Sansa 4, John 7, Bran 6, and Danny 6. No Ned. And not a single Eddard chapter. That's right. So uh, this is where we leave everyone who does not want to be spoiled for the rest of the books. For everybody else who wants to stay with us, let us queue up Davos After Dark. Davos After so that's pretty awesome from Gurm, by the way. I didn't notice this when I looked at next week, but not having Ned for five for fifty pages, Gurm's just really good at this. Just like, ah, why don't you just sit on this for a bit? Just sit on it. Just sit on it. You know what? Get... I think on my first read through, I think I skipped to the next Eddard chapter to see what would happen. Oh, dude, you're one of those. <laughs> and then I went back serious? and read the other ones. You're I one think of those. I, I think I did. You're a cheater. Oh, uh, you wouldn't last in court with Ned. Uh, consistently through all of my rereads, I always skip the uh, the uh, Kraken chapters. 
I just don't care. <laughs> so Not bad. this time, Brooke. Not this time. Not this time. I'm going to assign Ooh. you every Kraken chapter I can. It's going to be painful. <laughs> Ugh. Um, duh. so, um, are we surprised by Littlefinger's deceit? No, I, I don't think that we need to talk about anything because it doesn't really spoil. Like, Littlefinger is a little scoundrel that has been proven that will not change. I don't, I don't even, I don't even judge him that harshly. I mean, I, I was kind of alluding <laughs> to it. No, really, I was alluding to it in the last, in in the last, uh, chapter there, but he's doing what's best for him. He's ensuring a rule and doing a tremendous favor for uh, the people that are going to be in power for quite a long time. He's ensuring that he and his family will rise. And that's the name of the game in King's Landing. I don't think it's that bad of a thing that he did. He was looking out for himself. He's exceeding, that's true. He's exceedingly patient. That's one thing I got to hand a little finger, you know. Yeah. Even now he's taken the long way to, to get back to or not to get back to, but to get where he wants to be. You know, he's starting with the veil and then he's going to move outward. Apparently I think to try to gain more power, but he's very patient. Well, and he's, and he is just so that everyone's following along. We're talking about where we are with dance of dragons now, but he's, he's the Lord of Harrenhal as well, right? Yep. He's just slowly acquiring things. Yeah. Yeah. A player to be sure. And, and also, you know, technically has Sansa, who is the heir to the north, according to what anyone knows. So he's got that going for him. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, you said that he's just looking out for himself and his family. Interestingly, though, he doesn't have any family yet. Uh, yeah, I, Does meant he... his, I meant his name. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair yeah, he doesn't have any real family. He's got, I think he's got like a... Well, we see it in a chapter later where they actually go to the fingers on the way to the Eyrie. Um, he's got like a couple servants or something. Yeah, he's got like a castle, but I don't think he's got any real family. No. Yeah, he's a bit of a lone wolf, and he he married Liza officially, right, to yeah. get the veil. Yep. Did he marry to get Harrenhal? No, it was no, awarded was to him. Awarded to him for this, I think. Oh, okay. Or something else, Remember? maybe. He gets it awarded to him at some point by the Lannisters. Okay. It's just interesting that he hasn't used that card before the the marrying into power. Yeah, he's really worked for it for himself. Yeah, just impressive. It's almost like almost like a feminist move. <laughs> <laughs> and now we know finger. that Brooke likes Littlefinger more than she used to. <laughs> I've always really liked him, yeah. except for his you know his predilections on Sansa. But oh, um, Baelish gets Harrenhal for setting up uh, Joffrey and Marjorie. Um, later on yeah 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 anyways so what about yeah. uh so we uh what about this um we we matt has had a theory my theory is less uh, less complicated than matt's but matt has had a theory uh, do do we want to talk have we talked about this before matt or do you not want to here yet um we can talk about it it's not it's not fully fleshed very out. well developed yet well i'll but just talk about mine then I'll i'm fine with mine. talking about, about well okay it. so there's there's a theory that that i i talked about way back in the one of the Benjen discussions way before that Benjen knows who John is being the, the RLJ stuff knows who John is and that he has a destiny to fight the great other and be in the night's watch and be in control and have resources at his disposal 
and that that is why he has pushed John, not pushed, didn't dissuade John from joining the Night's Watch. Some might argue that he pushed him there. And that John, in this chapter, ending up a steward, is more evidence of this theory. That he has been maybe even in league, I think this is more Matt's theory going into it now, but in league with Mormont to say, when this kid shows up, we need to make sure he's a big deal here. We need to ensure that he succeeds. Right? And mm-hmm. I don't know. Thought it was I thought it was an interesting piece that kind of laid down in front of our theory a little bit. It's the circumstances surrounding a couple people joining the Night's Watch is what gets to me a little bit. We still don't know exactly why Benjamin joined. We still don't know why J.R. Mormont joined. Um, uh, but my theory is in its early stages of infancy is that they're all kind of in league to, to help John succeed. Very similar to what you said, um, yeah. Scott. I need to research it a little more. Um, but, you know, I can't – and maybe I'm looking too much into this. But when Mormont in just a few chapters gives Longclaw to John, a Valyrian sword that's been in his family for hundreds and hundreds of years, that seems like an awfully big thank you gift. Thanks for saving my life. Here's my family heirloom that's been in my family for hundreds and hundreds of years. Oh, and by the way, it's a Valyrian sword that can kill others. Yeah. I don't know, little things like that make me go, ooh. And then the big thing that hit me on this reread, and maybe this is talked about in theories I, I think I've talked about on this cast before, that I try not to read the theories because I get too sucked into them and I don't think for myself. Uh, but one thing that caught my attention as I was reading... The John chapter was at the very end. He talks about how um, uh, he talks about how the eyes and the the bark of the weirwood is awfully similar to ghosts, right? You brought it up, Scott. Could that mean that um, Blood Raven, the three eyed crow? is warging into John. Maybe that's a little, or not uh, John, but Ghost. Is that a little hint into that, maybe? Whoa. And that's why Ghost knows what Ghost knows, um, is because he's he's warging into him. We know that later on in the books, Ghost disappears for stretches beyond the wall, right? And remember, Ghost somehow knows where that buried cache of uh, dragon glass daggers and arrowheads are beyond the wall and everything. Something I'm going to explore a little bit more. No, that's research interesting now. because... And so now I'm adding Bloodraven, Brendan Rivers, to this, uh, this, this crew of Mormont and Benjen Stark, this whole team of uh, Team John guys that, are, that somehow know of John's potential, uh, potential and are trying to get him there. I really love this theory, and I love that you guys are coming up with original theories because it's tough nowadays it might not be Pretty original. It may not be. It, it could totally I just be don't there. look into them. <laughs> if somebody listening knows this theory exists, we're not trying to pass off something as our own that we've read. We just I haven't, I haven't seen it. Um, maybe it's out there. Certainly, let us know if you've seen it somewhere else. Yeah, for sure. I would just be interested to know if the purpose of preparing John is to make him into a leader or into a weapon by making him a steward you think that it might be making him into a leader, but maybe it's just positioning him closer to Mormont so he can be a more ready weapon. Sure. Could be. It's just hard to say at this point. Could be, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I do think it's a point. certain sense of fast-tracking him. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
whatever the case, he is definitely special for more reasons than just his teenage angst and his bastardness. Yeah. I continually get caught up with the wolf thing and why John's allowed to keep it in a place where everyone's supposed to be equal and have the same things. But uh, to me, that's another point of like they're of the theory of the theory. It's just like he's special and he's been he's given special mm-hmm. treatment. And if you don't see it, then I don't know. Maybe, maybe we just have our own theory colored glasses on that we see this stuff. But we do all love John. I yeah. am really interested in exploring this idea of warging and, and stuff a little more. Uh, I want to go back and read that Veramir six Vermeer skins chapter, yeah. POV the chapter. The I know there's so much more to that, that, that yeah. I can get out of it. And you know, it's there for a reason. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to get more into it too. So right now I feel like warging is just a sort of a, a vague explanation for stuff. I'd like it to be more pointed, but mm-hmm. what do you mean about or, that? I don't know what you mean. Maybe just like a more like just a a convenient way to, you know, get more information to switch bodies to have powers is warging, and it's not really defined. It's oh. more just this vague taking over a consciousness. Uh, it's probably me not reading the details carefully enough, but I would like to on this second read-through. They and talk a little bit about that in the world of ice and fire. Um, and I'm not prepared to talk about it cause I didn't know we would be, but, uh, something about something about the first men having this power. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I'll butcher it. So I don't, we can talk about it maybe in a future one, but there is some stuff in the winds of mm-hmm. the world of ice and fire that lends a little bit more into what warging is and who has the abilities and stuff. Oh, I can't wait for Christmas. I just went ahead and bought it. I got it on a <laughs> Black Friday deal, 25 bucks. I, I believe, uh, if I remember right, Six Skins mentions that wolves are some of the harder creatures to warg into. Hmm. Um, so, but someone experienced like Blood Raven, the Three Eyed Crow, could yeah. could probably pull it off. So. Yeah. Um, Scott, you asked a really interesting question in the notes. Did anyone on their first read think? Ned is toast at this point, which is in the throne room because you didn't. I think that was me. (laughs) Oh, okay. Don't give me credit for being interesting. Come on. No, it was kind of a dumb question. You can have it. It's not a dumb question. (laughs) No, it's good. Um, I didn't think he was toast at this point. I remember my first read through of the book when Ned was actually beheaded, when the the ax or the sword fell, I threw the book across the room. I was Same so reaction. shocked and appalled and just devastated by it. When the sword fell? So, I think you mean when the birds flew across the sky or something. I don't even think he doesn't even not even say he anything about the sword He doesn't falling. give you confirmation, like and that's what's so terrible about it. Yeah. It's like, is he really dead? Is he – wait, yeah. is he actually dead? Yeah. And, no, because – oh, I can't remember how it is. But whatever the case, it became very clear that he was actually dead. Yeah, sure. Um, you thought he was going to wriggle out of it, some sort of Braveheart oh, yeah. Robin yeah, moment. for sure. Yeah, I yeah. thought there so, was no way they were going to yeah. kill Eddard Stark. Yep. First read-through, Ned will get out of this. Ned yeah. will figure out a plan. Ned will use his wolfy wiliness to get the Lannisters back, not, oh my god, Joff goes on to be king and Cersei the regent. That's crazy. And Ned's head is stuck on a pole. That's right. I just Stands didn't think active. I just didn't think they'd ever get rid of him because he was too valuable of a piece. I didn't I don't know that I expected 
I think I expected Cersei's intervention or somebody's intervention to Joffrey to be like, look, dude, don't do this. And they'd keep him still as a hostage. I don't think I was expecting like a rescue moment or anything, but it just seems like a, it just seems like a really valuable piece to give away. Right. In this mm-hmm. game of Thrones. So I didn't believe that he was toast yet either. I figured he'd be in the cells for a while as a hostage. And then we'd have to deal with that for a while. That's the brilliance of George. He yeah. has all these guys that are so backdoorsy and so calculated <laughs> in their decision making and stuff. And then you've just got this psycho off the handle kid <laughs> who has complete disregard for any type of strategy or bargaining chips or things like that. And he's like, don't like him, going to kill him. Yep. Want to see a head roll? It's going to be yours. Yep. Mm-hmm. Honest question. I hate to side with the Lannisters, but what if they just let Joffrey become king? Could all of this bloodshed and everything been avoided? Well, that's that's the argument Peter makes. Mm-hmm. And he's making it for himself, it's... I think, too. But it, he says the same thing. He's like, look, Joffrey's not going to be of age for a while. You'll be regent. You can make the kid like you. You can even counsel him well. Maybe you can even make him into a good king. Like, let's just work this out. Maybe it'll be okay. Well, and um, to further that, the Lannisters are jerks, right? We don't like them. They seem like villains. But would they be bad leaders of a country? Like, would they be that bad? I don't know. They, I'm, you know, reading The World of Ice and Fire sparked this, and he talks so highly of what Tywin Lannister did his hand. He basically ran the country. Um, it said, Remember who uh, his audience is, though. Sure. The, this the winds of the world license fire. For those of you that don't remember, we talked about this briefly in the last episode. It's written by a maester who's trying to convince the current king, who when he releases this is Tommen, uh, but he's trying to uh, convince the current king of its value as a text to be shopping it around the kingdom as a history book. So he's going to talk flatteringly about the uh, the king's current grandfather. True, but he does mention some what I'm going to take as facts. He uh, repealed laws that were, you know, oppressive or otherwise bad. He reduced taxes while he was the hand. Uh, He built and repaired roads. He held all these tournaments, cultivated trade with the free cities. He did all of these factual recorded things that showed his uh, mettle as a good ruler. And he wasn't... um, well-liked. In fact, it does say it in the text here. It says, despite these accomplishments, Tywin Lannister was little loved uh, because of his kind of unforgiving, proud, cruel attitude towards things. But Whoa, um, wait. You're telling me he lowered taxes and did all that stuff? That's what it says. Can we have him as our leader? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, uh, I hate to side with the Lannisters, but would the kingdom would be so bad off with uh, in a Lannister-controlled government? Here's 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 where here's where the argument falls apart. Joffrey, sure. So Tywin probably is good, and he's I don't know how old he is. Whatever, he's going to die, and Joffrey's going to be in control. And before that, maybe Cersei's going to be in control. And we know that they're just dicks. Yeah, I think they would rely on hopefully Tywin getting through to Joffrey. Yes, before he he bit it. But is can uh, can can Tywin correct Joffrey? And that's, that's I agree question. with you completely. That is the uh, that is the wild card in all of this. Yeah, um, Joffrey's certainly scared to death of Tywin. Um, 
We see that in the later books, but we didn't see any, you know, actual behavior change from Joffrey uh, to its core. You know, he, he did what Tywin said because he was afraid of him. But if Tywin was out of the picture, I think Joffrey would just go back to being Joffrey. There was no lasting impression made upon him by, by Tywin. I think if, if Tywin, if, if everything went to this proposed plan, Joffrey became king and Tywin became hand, then they would have still set up Joffrey with Marjorie and the Tyrells would have still killed Joffrey. So I think it's a moot. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, maybe so, if, if, if Ned had stuck with the plan... Wouldn't married they have Sansa still married, married Sansa? Yeah. No, because remember, well, Littlefinger's plan was well, you just take off back up to the north, bring your family all up there. Renly's plan was to marry all the kids. Yeah. Renly's plan was to marry Joffrey to Sansa, Marcella to Bran, I guess. No, but I mean the current Bran. plan, Cersei's current plan, and Triple B's current plan was to mm-hmm. wed Joffrey to Sansa. Mm-hmm. And if they just continue and let Joffrey take the throne, is that not still the current plan? Okay, going back that far. I don't yep. know. Maybe it isn't. Maybe Cersei would just change it as soon as Robert died. That's possible. Sure. Look for a different alliance because she doesn't trust Ned. That's possible. I don't know. Yeah. Hard to say. I think the best course of action here would have just been, yeah, Ned staying on as the Hand and Lord Regent, cleaning up the place. And patient. Taking, yeah, just put Joffrey over his knee and taught the kids some discipline and some manners and wham, bam, exactly what Robert wanted on his deathbed. That would have been the best outcome. Yeah. But wait, Robert wanted something, right? (laughs) In his dying moments, he did. Mm, There was one more mention of tower of joy in this set of chapters. Do we want to talk about it? Um, I was trying to figure out why he would bring it up and, the only conclusion I can come to, and I think it's it's a fairly good one, is that John or uh, Ned is remembering, or is having remembrances of uh, protecting children from Robert's wrath. Mm. If RLJ is true, then part of the big reason for Ned, the promise me Ned stuff, is John or Ned keeping John's lineage a secret from Robert, and here he is trying to keep the Lannister kids lineage, a secret from Robert. And so there's the kind of that parallel there is the, is the mention of tower of joys that when he walks into the throne room and sees the four Kings guard standing there or whatever, or the three, no, it's when he's going, it's when he's going to talk. Yeah. Well, both. No, it's when he's, it's when he's going to talk to, um, he's going to see Robert. Yeah. And he sees the three Kings guard at the door. Oh, just like at the tower of joy and stuff. Also his dream about Lyanna, but it could be considered, a reference to that too, but yeah, you're right. The three Kings heard. It seems, it seems to me like it's just a reminder that this is always with Ned. Yep. Everywhere he goes, he's carrying this baggage with him. Right. And as good as a friend of he is of, of Roberts as he is, this is just a wedge for him always. And maybe it serves, maybe it serves as a, a guilty conscience thing that he doesn't want to hurt him again or lie to him different in another way or deceive him more than he already has with this one great deceit. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's another lie about lineage. And, and also, well, 
yeah, I won't go there, I guess. But just just that he he doesn't really want to he doesn't want to lie to him more. He he's mm-hmm. you know we, we well, I guess I won't go there. So he he's talked about how th- this great betrayal of Cersei's right of passing the, these kids off as Roberts, his betrayal is greater even still. Right, his betrayal to Robert is even greater than what Cersei has done. Because Robert loved Lyanna, right? And not telling him this, not telling him the truth about John, not telling him all this stuff, uh, that's a greater betrayal than what Cersei's done. I think Robert would think of it that way. I think Robert might think of it that way. Yeah, he's pretty sensitive to all things Lyanna. Yeah. I get the feeling that Ned really was leaning towards not wanting Lyanna to be with Robert. That's oh, the sense sure. that I get. Well, I think Liana was leaning towards not being oh, with a- Robert and absolutely. Ned was supporting that. Absolutely. Yeah. She wasn't. She was leaning towards not being with him. She had her misgivings and everything. But I think Ned was uh, kind of on the same page with her more than Robert. He was a loyal friend and he was so bound by honor that when the betrothal uh, took place that he, you know, supported it and was loyal to it. But is um, is 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 this leaning away from Robert stuff? I know I'm the Robert apologist on the cast, but is the leaning away from Robert stuff just what she said about he won't keep to one bed, all that stuff? Or do you guys have something else? So I think it's to? a certain protectiveness for his sister. No, no, I'm talking about Lyanna's uh, leaning away from Robert. Yeah, she yeah. she says that that That's... she had her misgivings because he wouldn't keep to one bed and and all of that. No, I didn't hear her say I have misgivings. I heard her say he wouldn't keep to one bed. But... Which to me translates to misgivings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. that's pretty clearly misgivings. Yeah. <laughs> Unless she, you she, know, she didn't want to keep to one bed either. Was, so maybe she was willing to give it a chance, but she definitely, in the few glimpses of Liana that we have, she didn't seem as enthusiastic about the whole idea as as Robert did. And obviously, we don't get as much of her as we do of Robert, but that's the impression I get. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of sad that the whole Liana remembrance thing dies with Ned. Yeah. Really gets dropped off and can't wait for some Howland Reed. Yeah, that'll be good. All right, or Benjamin. I'm still sticking to it. Benjamin knows. I think that's. <laughs> I think there's a very good chance of that as well. All right, uh, you guys ready to wrap it up? Let's wrap it up. Yeah. Okay. Great, great episode, guys. Mm-hmm. thanks for Thank sticking you. with us fans um, and listeners I don't know if I should presume to call you fans but thanks listeners <laughs> no, thanks we, captive audience for sticking we, with us we omitted our uh, teaser trailer discussion so you can be thankful of that we we are the one the one group around that has not decided to dissect the Star Wars teaser trailer so yeah I'm just going to leave it welcome. as I'm excited I, I'm not going to go too far into it it's 88 seconds I'm excited for it. I got goosebumps when the Millennium Falcon went flying through and doing all its twisty, twirly, weavy stuffs. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for the film. So. It looks really good, too. Did you guys see that mocking uh, if George Lucas was making yeah. this movie trailer? Oh, I didn't see that, but I have to go Google it now. <laughs> Look oh, it's it. amazing. <laughs> You'll like it. Um, I loved the Star Trek reboot by J.J. Adams. I don't think it was true to... Um, the Roddenberry saga, mm. but it was still great. Yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed Chris Pine quite a bit. Mm, you would, I do, and in uniform. <laughs> oh yeah, but uh, so I I feel like like 
it's in good hands as far as like filmography and characters and just the aesthetic of the movie. It's going to be well, tight. I, so I said we weren't going to dissect it. Now we are. But uh, I'll just say from my perspective, <laughs> I disagree with Brooke about Abrams. I'm not a fan in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he handles character well. Uh, but And character is what drives all good things in my brain. Uh, if you've read my profile on our Tumblr site. But uh, I did like, I do like the things he said about returning the old look um, to, of the films and, um, m- you know, getting rid of a lot of the green, ske- green screen crap that drove the, the, the prequels. And I like what he said, and I very, very much liked the look of the trailer, other than that soccer ball spinning robot, which I thought it was a waste of five seconds of my life. Um, what? But... Are we full R2-D2? Uh, that's how he moves. Uh, I didn't love it. Maybe I didn't get that it was R2-D2. Maybe I need to look again. But I don't love Abrams, but uh, I I very much like the look of this preview. It lit a spark in my fandom, uh, and I am excited. Yeah, it looks good. I'm going to remain cautiously optimistic at best, just because you guys know my stance on, on this whole Star Wars thing. And uh, But I have trouble letting go of what I've grown up on. Um, but, uh, just letting this exist in a separate parallel Star Wars universe, I think I can be comfortable with, and uh, I'm excited to see what they do with it. If it's bad, you know, having a certain sense of removal is good for me because if it's bad, then whatever, I can just go back to the Star Wars universe that I've grown up on and loved, which is the expanded universe. And I can just go back to that anytime, right? Like, Matt, you are invoking, that's a good, safe attitude. You are invoking my entire life philosophy, which is... Always expect the worst, <laughs> and when that doesn't happen, you're surprised and happy. Yeah, whatever. So, yeah. But yeah, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Just like the three prequels that came out during my lifetime, I'm lining up to see this thing at midnight the day it comes out. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. But and also, Matt, I think you should grow a beard for the uh, premiere so you can look better and jaded and stroke it. I'll do it. Yeah. All right, well, let's Is that what you look guys. jaded when you're stroking? I thought you looked like you were plotting when you stroke your beard. I'm kind of I'm kind of picturing him just like tired and resigned to the fact that this uh, movie is out, kind of giving up on life on a beard. I think he's Where are more your kids, Matt? I don't know. Out. I don't care. <laughs> Sorry I, that I made this into an actual dissection of the preview. That's okay. I wanted to do way more, but uh, you know, it's fine. We'll talk about the next one more. Yeah, there'll be more. Yeah. They're going to lead us on. <sighs> How well, many teasers are they going to give us? Like six? They got a year, so yeah. quite a few. Yeah. Well, I got to sign off, guys. So. All right. Bye, guys. Let's call it. Good night. Good night. Well, uh-